Um, and we can just start to look at some of the components of the uh, framework itself and get into some of these modules so people can start to get a sense about what's actually involved. And in the book, the first one that we deal with after going over some of these preliminaries is the shadow module itself. Let me just read the first couple paragraphs. The term shadow refers to the dark side of the psyche, those aspects of ourselves that we've split off, rejected, denied, hidden from ourselves, projected onto others, or otherwise disowned. In the language of psychotherapy, the shadow is referred to as the repressed unconscious, repressed because we've pushed or pressed it out of our awareness, and unconscious because we're not aware of it. But the fact that we are not conscious or aware of the shadow does not mean that it has no effect. It just expresses itself through distorted and unhealthy means, or what are typically called neuroses. The purpose of shadow work and of the shadow module is to undo this repression and reintegrate the shadow in order to improve our psychological health and creativity. One of the greatest benefits of shadow work is that it frees up energy that would otherwise be spent shadow boxing within ourselves. Maintaining our shadow is hard work. It takes a lot of energy to be constantly camouflaging undesirable aspects of ourselves from ourselves. Shadow work frees up that energy, which we can then use for growth and transformation. And that's a really important uh, answer to the question of, if I'm meditating, why should I do shadow work? Exactly. And I think that there, there are many meditators and spiritual practitioners who do see certain kinds of harmonization of the psyche through their meditative practice who would, at least uh, on the surface of things, uh, question whether a separate uh, right. module is necessary for uh, work with the shadow. And it's important to distinguish the insights that came with the Freudian revolution from the kinds of work with the dark aspects of the psyche that have gone on since ancient times that we see in uh, virtually every spiritual tradition or contemplative tradition. Right. And the, the core is the insight that uh, the psyche will repress into the unconscious aspects of itself, drives, emotions, uh, dimensions of experience, uh, and particularly impulses that have, have some active uh, intentionality will be excluded from awareness if they seem to threaten uh, psychic uh, survival or viability. So if I, as a baby, become really, really angry at mommy and I hate her and I want to kill her, but then I kind of realize she's the source of warmth and milk and food and safety and everything I need and I don't know how to be with it, I might repress that fury and rage and deny, right. deny it, exclude it from my awareness. But if this is a significant enough theme in the infant's life, uh, there can be a loss of contact with uh, rage that uh, becomes a dimension of shadow that will come back and subvert uh, conscious intention. Right. And, and, and thwart uh, the individual's purpose. So this is a little different 
it, that person who has repressed the fury might only be aware of, well, say if that fury is coming out as a angry uh, monster in, in in their dream, and they wake up quaking in fear of right. that angry one, their awareness will be of fear, right. not of of the anger they repressed. Right. Now that is the awareness that wasn't there in ancient times. The fact that we might have a conscious experience of emotions that are secondary or empathetic. Right. That they didn't understand yet these dynamics that became part of our awareness through the Freudian revolution. Right. These things are really only available to us in the modern and postmodern, really mostly postmodern. That was an early harbinger of postmodern thinking, the Freudian revolution. So it's, right. it's a, it's a postmodern insight, and it just wasn't available uh, to the ancients. Yeah, and, you know, it's so interesting to watch the history of this in this country when the Eastern traditions and contemplative traditions in general uh, came into awareness in this country primarily after World War II and then in the 1960s became kind of a staple of the counterculture. Um, and psychologies at that time, like humanistic psychology and transpersonal psychology, really looked to meditation and um, the resultant enlightenment or satori experience as kind of cure-alls. It was just really the assumption was that if you get satori, if you meditate, if you really fully plumb that type of what appeared to be an unconscious, that it's just everything's going to get better and your shadow's going to go away and you're not going to have any more neurosis, you're not going to have any problems with that at all. And unfortunately... Meditation does a lot of things, but it doesn't have the capacity to get at the repression boundary and the specific kinds of dynamics in the psyche that produce repression. So it can give you access to an enormous number of things in the psyche, particular things that, that are about to emerge. And so it can give you access to higher states on a more permanent basis. And that's the foundation of enlightenment and realization, awakening, and satori, and so on. But it can't dig backward and undo the repression barrier and give you a clean, clear access to the shadow. And we learn this both theoretically and then the hard way, practically. Theoretically, as we continue to try to fit the models of Western psychology together with the models of Eastern and contemplative psychology, they just, something wasn't fitting between them. There just wasn't quite this understanding of how structures of consciousness and states of consciousness fit together and wasn't an understanding then of what was repressed and how, what was happened when there was de-repression. And, but then also just pragmatically, which is, we watched what happened to all of us and the teachers uh, who taught meditation for 20 years. And they many, many positive things happened. They uh, increased sensitivity. They um, increased awareness. They gained access to um, higher aspects of their own being. But in many cases, their shadows remained untouched. And in some cases, it got worse. 
And it just became clear that meditation in and of itself won't get at this thing called the shadow. And so we have, um, you know, kind of pulled in, sucked it up, um, tightened our belts, gone back at it, and said, yeah, the shadow is produced by a particular type of avoidance mechanism, and it's a type that doesn't yield to meditative awareness. It just it isn't accessed that well. And so at the very least, what we want to do is mix meditation with some of the just core salient aspects of uh, psychotherapy and then arrive at a process then of growth and development that's getting access to both of the major developmental sequences in human beings. Uh, Therapy and shadow work is getting at these earlier structures that were repressed, and meditation is giving access to the higher states that are yet to emerge. And so combining both of these gives us, in a sense, coverage of the two major types of growth that human beings go through. And so we want to, one way or another, include shadow work with whatever spiritual practice we're doing. And so we have in um, Integral Institute, we've developed a simple and quick sort of introduction to therapeutic work that gets at most forms of the shadow and gets at them in a very, very quick way. Um, it's called the uh, 321, and that stands for third person, second person, first person. And 321 simply is reversing the direction that the shadow was created. The shadow was created as being your anger, first person owned. Then when you had trouble with that or you felt guilty because of that or you were punished because of that, you were one way or another pushed anger out of your awareness. You were not allowed to own it. You pushed it away into a second person corner of your mind and, and continued to push it into a third person which was then usually projected onto somebody else. So every time I get angry, I know that somebody's angry, but since it can't be me, it must be him. And so the anger is projected into a third person and becomes a it. And so an I becomes an it, and something that's owned first person becomes disowned third person. And the three, two, one process is if we, for example, have that dream about angry attacking monsters which cause fear, then the first part, the third part, is contacting that monster in third person, sort of finding out what it is, getting a feel of it, uh, seeing the monster carefully, giving awareness to it, um, becoming fully conscious of its contours, and then the next step, uh, the two part of 321, is converting that third person, it, into a second person, you. And so we put the monster in a chair in front of us in our imagination, or we can do this um, dialoguing in a book or diary and dialogue with the monster. Who are you? Why are you here? Why are you trying to hurt me? And just go back and forth facing this. 
So find it is the first step. Face it is the second step. And then once we have done that in dialogue a fair amount, then we ourselves identify with the monster. And so instead of I am talking to you, the monster, next time I ask you a question, I become the monster. I identify with that anger and I reown it and I make it part of my original emotional response. And so I have reversed the process of, of taking a first person aspect or quality or uh, uh, component of my psyche and pushing it out and projecting it onto a third person other. And I've taken that back from that third person other into the first person. And in doing that, I've regained the original quality of that which was projected. And that's important because a lot of projections are positive until they are projected. And, then they, and only then do they become negative. Um, but in this case, to finish it up, I am taking the emotion I fear in the face of this monster, which is fear, and I'm converting it back into rage or anger. And owning that is the authentic emotion that I'm feeling. And so now... I can do work without authentic emotion. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, for example, there is a um, very sophisticated tradition of taking any of the five afflictive or negative emotions and by entering those emotions with pure awareness or with meditative awareness or with non-dual awareness, those negative emotions are said to revert to their transcendental wisdom. And so what we would be doing here, if I was just doing Tibetan Buddhism, is I would be taking the fearful energy that I feel in the face of this monster, and I would be converting that to its corresponding wisdom. But the problem is this is not an authentic emotion. It's an inauthentic emotion because it's not what I'm actually feeling. It's a lie to myself. I'm lying about what I'm really feeling when I tell myself I'm afraid. And that lie is covering what I'm really feeling, which is anger and rage. So I have to get in touch with my anger first. That's an authentic emotion. Then I can transmute that emotion. Then I can go into it with awareness and convert that negative emotion of anger to its corresponding wisdom, which in the Tibetan tradition and in the integral tradition is clarity. So this is one of the problems with the traditional approaches is they have some very good work for working with reactive emotions, for emotions that are inauthentic. But they don't have ways of getting at the authentic emotion under the inauthentic emotion. And, and if I spend my time getting in touch with inauthentic emotions and converting them into the corresponding inauthentic wisdom, then I'm just basically being an inauthentic guy. And so what we really want to do is use something like a 3-2-1 process, take the negative, turmoil, conflicting, afflictive emotions, convert them back into their owned authentic form, and then transmute them into the transcendental or spiritual form. And that is indeed the two parts 
of the 3-2-1 process that the integral approach works with. And of course, the shadow work, it can um, be enormously deep. And you can do gestalt, you can do Morita therapy, you can do transactional analysis, you can do any number of psychotherapeutic procedures that will help you get in touch with your more authentic emotions. But you do need to do something, some sort of shadow work is almost mandatory in spiritual work because spiritual work itself doesn't get at it. It can sometimes exacerbate it, can make it worse, can put you at odds with your emotions and in every number of ways cause a lot of problems to be exacerbated on the spiritual path by not staying in touch with your emotions. And so the 3 one process is a simple process that we use uh, on waking up in the morning and looking through our, any dream elements that we have that are particularly upsetting to us and then do 3 one with them or at the end of the day and take any particular actual person during the day that has upset us the most or irritated us the most. And it can be in a positive or a negative way that if it's positive, it just means we projected some of our own positive qualities onto this person and then fell in love with them or idealized them, over-idealized them, and we need to take some of our own goodies back. And one way or another, stop shadow boxing or shadow hugging our way through life. And so this is one module that is a module that stands on its own because we think it's, it's that important. That's, that's right. The 3 two, one shadow process uh, is taught in some detail in the book, elaborating on what you uh, just took us through and offers several examples. And it's something that uh, anyone can learn and practice uh, right away without necessarily having to afford the time or money for a therapeutic relationship. And it enables a practitioner to be doing authentic shadow work right away with it, with no delay and with no real excuses or obstacles. Right. And it remains a really valuable tool, I think, throughout our lives. We, we yeah. can be doing uh, the 3 one process forever. But it isn't meant to encompass the whole shadow module, the, really right. the, all the richnesses of the whole field of psychotherapy among the dozens, really hundreds of therapies that are available, you know, many of them are going to be profoundly important in the lives of various integral practitioners. Somatic approaches and all kinds of approaches can have, you know, tremendous validity. Our, what, what's really ob- obligatory in, a, in an integral life practice is not necessarily so much the focus on the 3 two, one process, but the actual doing of real shadow work. That's what we really want to right. emphasize. Right. In the example that you uh, were going through, it, it might be kind of fun to connect this up with, with, with this uh, rather elegant summary of the uh, nature of shadow work and the transmutation of emotions using Sigmund Freud's famous summation, where it was, there I shall become. Yes. Yeah, uh, Go right ahead. Yeah. That, that in that example, the person was aware of fear. Anger had nothing to do with them. Right. Anger was not part of the picture at all. Anger was it. Anger was excluded. Well, anger, which was it, becomes I. We right. begin to realize I am furious. I just had 
push this out of my awareness. Right. Then this anger, having been felt, becomes mine in the process of uh, recognizing the uh, field in which the anger appears and also recognizing the the nature of uh, the the anger itself, the raw energy of the anger, the primordial basic quality that it is, right. you begin you begin to realize, ah, this is an aspect of my free being. It is right. not only uh, the negative uh, expression. And in that, it can be witnessed from a non-dual perspective by the I am, or the we sometimes call the I of the I, the I, I. And then we have reclaimed the energy of, of that anger, which originated originally was in it. Right. Uh, and I think it's valuable to, to just see that uh, simple formulation. What was it becomes I. What was I becomes mine and is witnessed by I am. Exactly. And thus, uh, the energy is reclaimed and liberated. And not many people know that um, Freud himself never once used the words ego or id. James Strachey, his translator of the English collected works of Freud, uh, used the terms, the Latin terms, id and ego, because he thought it would make Freud sound more scientific. The words Freud used were literally the pronouns, das es, the it, and das ich, the I. And so his most famous statement about psychotherapy, which was, where it was, their ego shall be, was actually written where it was, their I shall become. And that's a brilliant phenomenological summary of what happens in therapy. And if you actually go back and read Freud, instead of saying, you know, the, the it does this and the, to, to the poor ego and so like that, and you actually read the I and the it, if I look inside my mind, I find a larger re- region of the I, a region that appears as an it. It's spooky how accurate Freud was in his phenomenology. And so, you know, you can understand why he rightfully was was viewed as a genius. But be that as it may, it's certainly what we find is that the generation of neurotic symptoms goes one, two, three, first person, second person, the third person. And the reversal of that process and reowning it is three, two, one, third person it back into first person I and reclaiming it. And so then as you and then once we have that authentic emotion, then if we're doing spiritual work, we connect that authentic emotion with spirit or with big mind or with non dual awareness or with the presence of God and we allow that authentic emotion to expand into infinity. And that's when its transcendental wisdom shows up. And so anger, that the white hotness of anger shows up as clarity, as a pure brilliance of awareness. And so now we are finally back in touch with the raw transcendental spiritual transpersonal component of emotions. And that way emotions themselves become a profound part of the path. 
we say bring everything to the path, it's no matter what emotion you have, doesn't matter. You can work with it on a three, two, one basis and, and convert it back into whatever authentic feelings you're having at the moment. And then you can release those authentic feelings into infinity and into a wisdom and into a radiance that, that they themselves are harboring. But not if you project them. Then you get the authentic form, and then you get a reactive emotion, and then you're stuck with that. So um, it's one of the reasons that we put the shadow module also. It's the first module that people working with in the book um, is for all those reasons, to help people start uh, getting in touch with their emotions and learning how to read them accurately. Because repression is just another term for lying. Repression is how we lie to ourselves about what we're really feeling, what we're really thinking, what we're really desiring. And the unconscious is the locus of the lie. It's the nexus of the lie. And so learning to get in touch with our feelings and to read them accurately, to read them truthfully, is one of the ways that we start relating to ourselves in an authentic fashion and one of the ways that we start opening ourselves to authentic spiritual wisdom, but also how we start to relate authentically to other human beings. By not lying to ourselves, we won't lie to them about what we're thinking or feeling or wanting or desiring. And so it, it's an extremely important module. And the shadow work, 321, as you point out, it does, that doesn't cover everything, but it, it's extremely effective and very quick. Uh, and it gets at a, a great deal of the shadow. And then, of course, you can get at other aspects of it by going into things like gestalt therapy or uh, transactional analysis or any sort of talking therapy that you can happen to find. Um, but doing something like that is something that, we, of course, highly recommended. It's one of the modules, and um, we put in the modules, uh, the three, two, one process, dream work, journaling, psychotherapy, family and couples therapy, transmuting emotions, art, music, and dance therapy. And of course, those are just a, a small part of what the shadow module and the approaches to it. But it's, um, um, and it's one of the reasons that it's very flexible in the interlife practice itself is flexible because all we're saying in that module is just pick one and use it, uh, start using it to get in touch with your authentic feelings and those themselves will not only not start sapping your energy and cutting down on the strength and the vitality that you have for other things like transformation and meditation, um, but will themselves become sources of uh, genuine, authentic spiritual wisdom. That's, that's great, Ken. Uh, I think that's a pretty good summary. It, it brings up uh, a thought. I've, I've actually meant to ask you about this. Uh, as you're well aware from your many dialogues with Father Thomas Keating, right. one of the main uh, themes in his conversation about the... Uh, Centering prayer and uh, Christian contemplative practice is the idea of the divine therapia. Right. And he uh, 
does talk about various emotions being transformed in the process of that uh, meditative practice. And he clearly brings to the process of meditation a thoroughly uh, psychologically sophisticated perspective that is not something we could impute to the Desert Fathers or or the ancient roots of the Christian contemplative tradition. So I can imagine that if one brings a very psychologically sophisticated perspective to one's meditative practice, one might be able to understand and uh, work with the uh, emotional contents of one's experience in a way that... uh, might do some good, but it may be a blurring of of these lines that you've uh, demarked here in this conversation rather than a contradiction of the theme. Uh, And I'm curious as to how you you view that. Yeah, um, uh, as sophisticated as a modern or postmodern person might get about their contemplative prayer, um, it's pretty hard to deny the essential lineage mind of Christian prayer, which is basically uh, an axial religious age, which means it's basically body unfriendly. It is whether it's Patanjali's Yoga Sutras or Gautama Buddha's Theravadan meditation or the desert fathers one's approach to the body is the body a tomb the body sin don't touch better to marry than to burn and that is not exactly conducive to befriending these emotions and getting to you know the authentic core um, of them and so so one is is it's just so many of the lineages themselves coming out of the axial period was a period that the causal state was first really discovered and pure emptiness was first really understood and became a goal of spiritual practice was to get into nirvana and out of samsara, away from samsara. And it wasn't until in the East and in the West there was a, a flowering of the, what became the equivalent of Mahayana Buddhism where it was understood that that which is samsara is not other than nirvana, and that which is nirvana is not other than samsara, that we could actually go into the body's desires and find a nirvanic wisdom. And so it, it's, you have to be really careful along these the traditions because many of them still you know, cling to their core founder orientation, which is the body sin. The body's energies suck and stay away from them. Um, but it's, it's more than that, even. It's that the actual mental awareness, the attitude that one takes up in contemplation in general is not conducive. It doesn't know enough to know how to interpret the emotions that come up. So when fear comes up in the face of that monster, there's nothing 
in my awareness that says this is really rage. This is really anger. And that's because that interpretation of the symptoms, Freud's first major book, the interpretation of dreams, is not something that meditation does. Meditation, in almost all forms, gets you to withhold and suspend mental interpretation. And so it, it doesn't give you a series of new interpretations of how to get at the authentic aspect of some of these inauthentic emotions. And so all it really teaches you to do is be present to these emotions and to give them awareness and to follow them. And all of that is just giving attention to what is inauthentic about you and is paying attention and getting in touch with that which is lying about you. So you're getting in touch with the lie. You're, you're exercising it even in some ways. But nothing comes along and says, oh, by the way, this is a lie. And here's the, the real authentic truth. And that happens in the same, it's the same reason that there are no structures of consciousness in any of the contemplative texts. And that's because they're not available to introspection. They have to be studied using large groups of people uh, over large amounts of time, watching how they develop, seeing how their responses change, seeing how they always move in one direction. Uh, and then you say, okay, I have a series of stages here. Uh, and the same things happen with the interpretation of symptoms. Is took a lot of people over a large amount of time uh, waiting and seeing what was really under these surface feelings and how they could be interpreted more correctly or accurately. So um, I know this is kind of a uh, sort of a friendly um, disagreement that Father Thomas and I have. And, you know, I personally think that he's just being a little more um, um, pleasantly defending of the lineage uh, coming out of the Desert Fathers than it really deserves. Uh, I, I, I personally just don't see that happening. Now, if it does, great. You can still use the 3 two, one process. But I, I don't really see a lot of how to interpret these inauthentic emotions coming coming out. Thank you. Well, it's a it's it's obviously th this kind of uh these friendly disagreements are the uh source of deeper explorations that end up explicating the distinctions. Absolutely. More robustly. Absolutely. Um and of course Father Thomas and I agree on so much that the uh, occasional disagreement is is uh uh, fun. <laughs>